Pop quiz time for those of you who have heard uh, the past couple weeks. How many of you in here today came to church? Uh, that's a trick question. Trick question. No, we didn't come to church because we because we are the church. Right. The definition of the term church is not a building. Church means called out ones. That's what the, the word ecclesia means. That's, the, that's what the Greek word means. So we didn't come to church because we are the church. Not, even, not just here, but also out there, right? When we're out there, we are the church. So this is part three of uh, a three-part sermon series, if, if that's what you want to call it. Uh, just to give us a quick review, in the first week we talked about how we are the church and how important it is that we embrace our identity as the church instead of looking at church as a thing we do. Uh, it's not just something that we do on Sunday mornings, it's something that we are wherever we go. And uh, the reason that it's important that we embrace that identity is because we act on the identity that we embrace. Uh, last week, we talked about the implications of our identity, that being what Christ has called us out of and into. We talked about how significant it is that we've been called out of darkness and into his marvelous light to proclaim the excellencies of God. And so this week, what we're going to be doing is just wrapping it all up and, and bringing it all together. Like I said, talking about one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible. And the reason that this is one of my favorite passages is because I think this really outlines God's plan for the church, the way that he designed us to function, and that is teamwork. And that's why that's the title of this message. God's design for us is teamwork. Now, when you think of, of great sports teams, any sports fans in here today? Any of you guys watch sports? Okay, we've got some people who watch sports. When you guys think of like the greatest teams of all time, who do you guys think of? I mean, think of somebody just in your mind. What's the greatest team that you can think of? Now, I don't know about you guys, but for me, when I think about great teams, I mean like really great teams, I think about the 1992 Olympic basketball team. You guys remember that? They were called the Dream Team. And see, in 1988, we didn't win the gold. And so uh, in 1992, we said, well, we're going to stop sending just college players. We're going to send our professionals out there and show the world what we can really do on the basketball court. And so what they did is they assembled the greatest team, in my opinion, the greatest sports team ever. And uh, it consisted of players in the NBA, one college player, but it included three guys that you could argue were the three greatest players of all time. Michael Jordan, who many would say is the greatest player of all time, Magic Johnson, and Larry Bird. Those guys were awesome. And I mean, sure, you could argue other players were the greatest players of all time. But yeah, those guys were, were awesome. And so what they did is they went out there and they embarrassed everybody. I mean, uh, the, the average, they didn't lose, the average... Uh, margin of victory was like 40 points or something like that. And, you know, if a team got closer than 40 points, it was like, uh-oh, these guys are getting close, you know. And, and so you, you, you kind of felt bad for these other teams because these guys were all professionals um, who were out there just getting destroyed by, by our guys. And you thought, well, you know, what, what if we put, like, just three of our guys out on the court? Now, I, I don't think they're allowed to do that by the rules, but, you know, there were some times where we were winning so convincingly, I was like, man... If only we could just, you know, go down to three players. Or, or what do you think would happen? What do you think would have happened if you would have gone down to one player? Well, you know, even if you put Michael Jordan out there, who was in his prime, I mean, this guy was awesome, could score from anywhere against anyone. But, you know, you put him against five guys, five professionals, 
And he was probably going to have a bit of a challenge. He was probably going to lose. But, you know, there, there were other teams that tried to do the same thing. And not every dream team since then, they've, they've kept the name for the Olympic team. Not, not every team has done the same thing. In fact, the Lakers uh, tried to do that at one point. Do you remember, if any of you guys watch basketball, there was one season where the Lakers saw that, that Carl Malone was at the end of his career. He'd been this great power forward all these years. And Gary Payton, who had a, a great career up here in, in the Seattle area, um, you know, he hadn't won a championship. And so what the Lakers did is they brought on uh, these two guys who were perennial all-stars. For years, these guys had been the best players at their positions. And so the, the Lakers were, were loaded, really, at every position. And what happened? And, yeah, they lost. They, they didn't win. They didn't win the championship. Well, why would a team that's loaded at every position lose? What's the difference between them and the Olympic Dream Team? Well, the, the, the Olympic Dream Team, those guys committed to, to selflessness. Michael Jordan, who is the, one of the greatest scoring legends ever in the NBA, didn't even lead the team in scoring. Charles Barkley did. He was selfless. He just did whatever needed to be done. The Lakers, on the other hand... One ball, five guys, eh, makes it a little bit challenging. But there's this thing called chemistry that really defines great teams. And what you, what you see is you have great players who are willing to be selfless, to commit themselves to a game plan. And that's what makes a team great, is when everybody's working toward a common goal. And sometimes... That means just being completely selfless and letting somebody else get the glory. See, God's designed for us as, as the church, every church, not just Linwood Evangelical Free Church, but every church. His design is teamwork. And that's what this passage is talking about today. See, if we're not selflessly working toward a common goal, I would say that the chances of us receiving or, or being witness to God's blessings in our church's ministry will be reduced if we're not willing to be selfless. Yeah, in his sovereignty, God will bless those whom he will bless. You know, I, I understand that. I agree with that. But the Bible teaches that God wants our obedience. And what we're going to see today is that he rewards obedience with blessings, even when we don't always recognize a blessing as such. Now, over the, the past couple hundred years, there's been a model of the church where it's kind of been a one-man show. The pastor has been viewed as something of a jack-of-all-trades. You know, he's, he's supposed to be gifted as, as all these things. He's in charge of every ministry. He's got to go to every service and preach at every service and uh, do visitations and you know, do this and that. And he's responsible for absolutely everything. And if we look at the statistics for the generations that have had this model for the church... It has been a disaster. It has been an absolute disaster if you look at the statistics. If you, if you have uh, access to the Internet, Google pastor burnout statistics. They will blow you away. I just want to share a couple of those with you, but, but what I want to do is show you that this has been a disaster. 80% of pastors believe that their ministry has negatively affected their marriage. 80%. Because they are pulled into doing everything in the church. The whole show is on them. Get this. This one blew me away. I, I wouldn't have guessed this. 50%. 50%.
of pastoral marriages end in divorce. Would you believe that? I mean, the guys that are doing the weddings are the ones who are losing their own marriages, half of them. That's the same statistic as the population at large. More than 50% of pastors' kids grow up to need psychiatric care because their dad was never home, because he was the one-man show. He was doing it all. And there are more statistics, more statistics than that. I mean, there are, there are a ton of them out there. But the fact is, who, let me ask you this. Who would be crazy enough to think that that's the way God designed us to function? Would anybody think that that's the way God designed us to be, for one man to be the center of attention, one man other than Jesus? No. God's design for the church has never been for this to be a one-man show. He designed us for teamwork, and he designed us with the potential for what makes an amazing team, chemistry. Now, Paul told us, he tells us in, uh, in his letters, that everybody is gifted for ministry. Not just the pastor. Every believer is gifted for ministry. He wrote to the Corinthians, he said, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. And he goes on to say, One and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. That's from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 and 5, and then verse 11. So what I want to do today as we're looking at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 16, what we're going to do is we're going to take a, a look at a small sample of the gifts and the callings that Jesus has, has given, and then we're going to zoom out and see how this is all designed to work together. So uh, if you have your Bibles with you, again, the back of your bulletin is, is now blank. It doesn't have the verse back there anymore, and that's so that you can take notes and, and so on and so forth, but don't be afraid to add notes in the margins of your Bible, too. Anyway, uh, Ephesians chapter 4, let's start with verses 11 and 12. Paul writes, And he, that is Jesus. Remember, Jesus said that he was going to build his church, remember? That's, that's key here. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastor-teachers. Yeah, I just said pastor-teachers. Actually, if you look at the Greek, there's no and between pastors and teachers. It's one word. Uh, it's probably, um, the and was probably inserted there for clarity, but the Greek makes it clear that the pastor is a teacher. So this is just a small sample of some of the types of gifts and positions. You can find other lists of, of gifts and positions in Romans chapter 12, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. But the, the question is, why did God, why did Jesus give these people, these positions, these gifted people to the church? He continues in verse 12, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Now, I told you guys a couple weeks ago that our purpose here is twofold. First of all, it's to encourage you. The second purpose, and this is, this is key, is to equip you, equip you for your ministry. What type of ministry? That depends on how you're gifted. Paul told us that every one who is a disciple of Jesus, has been gifted. So the type of ministry that you're being equipped for will depend on how you've been gifted. But the picture that Paul's painting for us here is, is of a church which operates as a team, with all of us working toward a common goal. So what's the goal here at Linwood Evangelical Free Church? Our goal is, is very simple. 
And you, you can write this down because you're going to hear me say this time and time and time again. Our goal here is to know Christ and to make him known. To know Christ and to make him known. That's, that's really my pers- the center of my personal philosophy of ministry. And that's why one of the things that we will try to give you here every single week, week in and week out, is solid biblical teaching. When I applied for this job, that's, that's something that you guys said that you wanted. That's something that I love. Solid biblical teaching. But here's the thing. All we can do is give you that teaching. We can't force you to do anything with what you've heard here. It's kind of like the old saying, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. You know the difference is between meat and milk when we're talking about the Word of God? You know what the difference between meat and milk is? It's what you do with what you hear. It's what you do with it. And I, I like to use this, this illustration kind of grosses kids out. They're like, oh, I, I don't want to drink my, my milk. But you know where milk comes from? Milk comes from, from, uh, from a cow, right? But how does, the milk, uh, how does the cow produce that milk? Well, it grazes, right? And it, what, it'll do, what it'll do is it'll get a mouthful of grass and it'll chew it up and swallow it. Then it kind of pukes it back up. You know, it regurgitates it. And it chews it some more and chews it some more and it swallows it again and regurgitates it again and it chews it up. And eventually it does... Uh, it, it does get digested. The, the grass gets digested after the cow's done all this work to get it there. Now, the baby cow uh, needs milk because it's easily digested. It, it doesn't take a lot of work on their behalf. It kind of just goes right through them, and it nourishes them the way that they need to be nourished. That's where milk comes from. It comes from this process. But see, milk takes very little time to be digested. That's the key. Milk takes t- uh, very little time to be digested, whereas meat, meat takes some time. See, if you hear a message here on Sunday morning, and you walk out of here and just kind of forget about it, it hasn't impacted your life. Monday morning, you don't even remember what we talked about on Sunday. It's milk. You've, you've made the message milk. If it's something that you really chew on, and chew on, and chew on, and work through, and wrestle with, it's meat. You go home, and you say, well, I, I want to dig a little bit deeper into this subject. I'm going to meditate a little bit more on this subject. And so throughout the week, you're, you're, you're thinking about this. You're chewing it. Before it gets digested, you've really wrestled with it. You've applied it to your life. That's what makes it meat. In Joshua chapter 1, verse 8, The angel of the Lord says to Joshua, keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. So what's he doing? He's saying, make it meat. Chew on it. Wrestle with it. Work through it. So our job here is to give you food from the word of God and to give you a place to be equipped, as Paul says, equipped for the work of service. And that word service can also be translated as ministry. To be equipped for the work of service or ministry to the building up of the body of Christ. Now, I love that that Paul refers to the church as a body. It's just, it's such a a perfect illustration of the way God designed us 
to function. I mean, you'd think that the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to pass that on to us or something, you know? It's just a great illustration. And for me, there's not a more convincing reason to believe that we're designed for teamwork because that's how a body works. It works together. Can you imagine how ridiculous it would be to, to see somebody whose arms and, and, and legs and fingers and toes are all fully functional, yet they insist on walking around or hopping around on just one leg. All the other limbs just kind of lay dormant. Let the, let the one foot do all the work all the time. Yeah, that, that's, that's kind of a silly picture, right? What would happen to the other joints and limbs, though? What would happen? They'd get this thing called atrophy, right? Where they would stop functioning properly, not because they can't, but because they haven't been used for so long that the muscles just kind of go dead. Now, don't think for a second, friends. Don't think for a second that the same thing can happen in the church. No, not physical atrophy. We're talking about something that's much more dangerous and something that is much more difficult to overcome. Spiritual atrophy. And you know what that leads to? That leads to people who are going to church, but not being the church. The fact is that while it's possible for a person to use nothing but one foot, sure, you know, I mean, people who, uh, who have their arms amputated or, or a leg amputated, you know, they, they learn to work around that. So it's possible to do that, but what's that going to do if everything else is perfectly functional? It's going to affect their efficiency, right? I mean, there are just some things that the foot can't do as well as the hand, and there are things that the hand can't do as well as the foot. And in fact, there are some things that, if you're just using one foot, there are some things that the foot just can't do. Try kicking a soccer ball with one foot. You know, you've you've got to plant one foot so that you can kick with the other foot. You need two feet to, to really kick a soccer ball. So the first point of our game plan here, write this down in your bulletins, the first point is to be more than a hearer. Don't let it be milk. Make it meat. Make it meet. And you do that by being a doer and a hearer. <clears throat> James addresses this issue in his book. He writes uh, in chapter 1, verses 22 to 25, he says, But prove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. So did you catch that? James just told us that obedience, acting on what we've heard, that's something that God blesses. That's something that God blesses. So if you're coming to church and listening to a message and you don't see yourself being transformed by the word of God, if you don't see yourself growing in Christ-likeness, James says you're deluding yourself. You're kidding yourself. See, God's desire isn't for you to have biblical information nearly as much as he desires for you to have Christ-like transformation. Information is great. Information is great. I, I, I love it when people know the Bible backwards and forwards. That's great. But you know what? If it's not transforming your life, 
if it's not making you more like Jesus, then it's all for nothing. There are scholars out there who know the Bible better than 99% of all pastors, and yet they're skeptics. They haven't applied it to their life. They think it's a bunch of mumbo-jumbo, hocus-pocus stuff. The goal is not information. It's transformation. Now listen, listen carefully to what Jesus says about the very same issue. In Luke chapter 6, verses 46 to 49, Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord? And do not do what I say. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when a flood occurred, the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who has heard and not acted accordingly is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation and the torrent burst against it, and immediately it collapsed, and the ruin of that house was great. Now, who's, who, who's Jesus talking about here? Is he talking about somebody who goes to church and an atheist? You know, like Richard Dawkins or uh, Christopher Hitchens or one of those guys? Is he comparing a Christ follower to an atheist? No. No, he's not. He's, he's actually comparing one churchgoer to another churchgoer. He's comparing one per, two people who hear the words of Jesus. The one thing that makes the difference between them is what they do with what they've heard. One does something, <laughs> one does nothing. One is a hearer, one is a hearer and a doer. See, it all goes back to the difference between milk and meat. What will you do with what you receive? So again... Be more than a hearer. Be a hearer and a doer. I would say that this principle will be central. It will be crucial in determining our success in reaching this community for Christ. If we as a team, and we're a team, if we're going to see people being transformed, if we're going to see that blessing, it'll be a result of our obedience <laughs> to what Jesus has instructed, what we learn in his word. So you want to know how to be a listener? You want to know how to be a hearer? Do nothing. Just come on Sunday morning and, and hear the message and hurry out of here so that you can watch football or go to lunch or, or whatever you do and don't think about God or, or Jesus or the Bible until next Sunday. That's simple. That's what 99% of everybody in the whole world seems to do, Right? How do you be a doer? How do you be a doer? You be a doer by chewing on what you've heard, by meditating on it, wrestling with it, and applying it to your life. That's going to mean different things for different people. For some people, that's going to mean confession. For some people, that's going to mean repentance. For some people, it's going to mean committing to do something and sticking with it. In other words, getting involved and volunteering. So our job is to do what Paul has said here, to equip you for the service, the ministry that God has called you to. There's so much more than I'll ever know. Take me deeper where you want me to go. There's so much greater. 
than I've ever dreamed. There's more to this life than I see. You're so much more than I'll ever know. Take me deeper where you want me to go. We're so much greater than I'll ever dream. There's more to this life than I see. You are higher, greater, deeper, more beautiful, higher.